Hey, Goal Getters, this is Kristen Guile, and you are about to listen to an interview I did with Kate Field, who is the founder and CEO of the Kombucha Shop. The Kombucha Shop is an at-home brewing kit. It sells for about $45 and includes a reusable glass jar and all the ingredients you need to make one-gallon batches of kombucha, which is very popular drink right now and cuts the cost down significantly. So Kate started the kombucha shop with just an $800 of her own money as an initial investment, and she did it while working in the D.C. area. Uh, she was working with underserved communities doing nutrition and cooking education for a nonprofit, and she was working on different ways to solve hunger and by also teaching the nonprofit's um, community about different cooking techniques and how they could eat healthy while still not spending a lot of money. And eventually the lessons she learned during that work inspired her to create the kombucha shop as an affordable way for people to get the benefits of the drink. Eventually she was able to grow the kombucha shop big enough to where she got an invitation to appear on Shark Tank. And we talked a lot about what goes on behind the scenes when it comes to making a deal. She was on Shark Tank this past November, and she got a deal with Barbara Corcoran and the guest sharks, Banks founder Sarah Blakely, who offered Kate $350,000 in exchange for a 10% stake in the kombucha shop. So what you will hear a lot in this interview is, uh, I think Kate's charisma is really going to come through. We had a great time talking to each other, and her personality really shines through. You'll also hear her genuine thoughtfulness. Uh, she really is a considerate person, and you can tell that she has a lot of passion for both her product and her employees. And of course, you're going to get a lot of good behind-the-scenes Shark Take info and a little bit of Mark Cuban backstory. So please enjoy this interview with Kate Field, Goal Getters, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, I'll sit, I'll be on the road. I'll be back. I'm just reaching for a goal. Welcome to We Got Goals. My name is Kristen Guile, and today I am speaking with Kate Field, who is the CEO and founder of The Kombucha Shop. Kate, how are you doing? I'm doing so great. Thanks for having me on, Kristen. No problem. We are so excited to talk to you and to hear about all the things that you've been up to with The Kombucha Shop, including your recent appearance on Shark Tank. But before we get too far into all of that and talking about goals, I'd love for you to walk me through your background and how you got to where you are today, how your obsession with kombucha started. Go. <laughs> yes. Uh, wow. Okay. So it's definitely a little bit of a long history at this point. I started the company almost five years ago now, which is really crazy to think about uh, that I've been doing this for so long, but it literally, it feels almost like yesterday sometimes. <laughs> definitely. So... I first was introduced to kombucha while working in Washington, D.C. I was a nutrition and culinary educator in low-income communities there. I worked for the Capillaria Food Bank, which is this phenomenal organization uh, based out of D.C., and we worked with 400 different community partners, so anything from a food shelf, an after-school program, a church, basically everybody working in the community to help house, clothe, and feed the underserved in our area. And so I worked on a lot of really fun things around nutrition education and teaching cooking skills in the kitchen, 
for folks that maybe didn't have a lot of experience with a chef's knife or even really basic cooking skills. And so that was sort of where I cut my teeth in terms of um, taking a concept that seemed really challenging and possibly intimidating, like cooking, and making it really easy, simple, and even fun to do. And so when I was introduced to kombucha, it was in this time when people were, so this was back in 2013, kombucha was still, at least in some areas, not really well known. And either you bought GTs or maybe some other up-and-coming breweries back then, but uh, there it wasn't a ton. So a lot of people were homebrewing, and all of my friends in D.C. at the time had been homebrewing, or at least it seemed like it. So I learned to homebrew from my good friend Abby, and she taught me everything. And it was really simple the way that she did it because she worked with me at the food bank, and she you know did all the kind of same work that I did. And I thought to myself, man, if only other people had people like us to take something that seemed really scary and that actually is not and give it to them in a really straightforward, easy, clean directions uh, and give it to them in this fun package. And so that was sort of the beginning of when I started thinking, man, I want to share kombucha and homebrewing kombucha with so many more people. How can I do that? That's amazing. Uh, Were you always super comfortable in the kitchen? Like, did you grow up in a family where brewing your own kombucha was not out of the norm? I think I was probably your average 90s kid in that it was this mix between, you know, I grew up in a suburb in Arizona uh, called Mesa. It's just a suburb of Phoenix. And I think I was pretty average in that we ate a lot of fast food. You know, I was eating Panda Express and uh, McDonald's on the regular. But my mom, you know, was raised in a, a home that cooked all the time. So she had a lot of cooking skills and would still cook for us a lot. And I think so much of our generation grew up that way in that our parents were wanting to cook for us and did oftentimes, but then the lure of fast food and takeout was also super prominent. And it was also in this time when nutrition wasn't really talked about and at least wasn't widespread in, in lower and middle income households like mine. And so I would say before my early 20s, I had very little cooking skills or education. And then it was in college. So I went to a small liberal arts college called St. Olaf, which is in Minnesota. And my final two years there at the school, I lived in a home uh, with 11 other girls. We started this honor house. We didn't have like a Greek system there. Mm-hmm. So we had what were called honor houses, which is essentially like a sorority, but was all based around social justice. <laughs> oh my God, that's um, intense. Yeah. So I started, it was called the, oh gosh, I don't even remember. It was like Association for Social Justice Network or something like that. And we helped pull together. I was a huge activist in college. So we'd pull all these different groups together. And anyways, we did a lot of cooking. All of the the girls that I lived with were, were really into cooking and we had our own CSA. And so throughout my twenties, I went and actually lived and worked on a farm in upstate New York and was a farm apprentice there for six months right after college. Wow. Yeah, and that was sort of my major get thrown into the world of from seed to table. (laughs) So, you know, we grew all of our own food. I butchered chickens. I fed pigs, milked a cow every day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, at night, we would we would cook dinner. We'd cook lunch, everything, always from scratch. And so um, that was really where I learned 
to cook. And so when I came to DC, I sort of had this like really loose skill set of agriculture, because at that point, I'd probably worked on a few different farms. Um, And then I also had this cooking background. And then I had a little bit of a nutrition background in terms of I focused a lot of my time and energy on like the healthy meals in schools revolution thing that was happening back um, like Jamie Oliver, blah, 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 all that stuff like in 2010 yeah, was really big. And so I did a lot of programs and I um, worked a lot on that kind of stuff. And so it all kind of culminated uh, at this, this job at the Cafeteria Food Bank. Yeah. And even besides that skill set, it seems like a big quality you gained through all of that different experience is just the knowledge that it is possible even to do these things from scratch, that it can be made approachable and like you can just do it with a can-do attitude and a little bit of know-how. Yes. And that was what I tried to really communicate to my clients was that, look, we can make a killer, super healthy, low-cost meal with ingredients that are sitting in your pantry right now. Or in the case of many of our clients, ingredients you're going to pick up from the food shelf today. And so it was like, how do I take a can of black beans, a can of corn, a bag of tortilla chips, and try and find and work in a piece of fresh produce? How do I turn that into a healthy and delicious meal that anybody can make in five minutes? And it doesn't take a lot of time, doesn't take a lot of thought. And so it's really just saying, actually, cooking and cooking healthy is something that we can do. We just have to learn how to do it, really. It's like getting back to the basics of how do I just take ingredients and put them together and not make it super fussy and not make it complicated and just nourish my body. Yeah, it seems like that demystifying these ingredients in the process is sort of a theme as you've uh, brought the kombucha shop up with you. Um, So now that we know a little bit about you, I'd love to hear uh, a little bit more about what a big goal is that you've worked towards in the past. Why was it so important to you? And what steps did you take to get there? Yeah, so I loved this question. I actually had a pretty crazy goal. When I was 25, I decided for a while I had wanted to start my own business. And my job at the food bank was actually not my only job. I had three jobs at the time. Oh, so I didn't grow up um, in a wealthy household, but I went to a quote unquote fancy college um, and I had to pay my way through that. And so I was I had a lot of college debt. And so I was working three jobs in D.C. just to be able to pay on my loans. Wow. And so I was thinking to myself at the time I didn't and I actually didn't mind the work. I'm kind of a. I'm not a workaholic by any means. I don't think in the negative sense of it, but I truly do love work and I love working with people. And so to me, having three jobs was never actually, uh, I never saw it as a bad thing. Sure, I was tired, but you know, I one of my jobs was I was a bartender at this really popular bar in DuPont Circle in Washington, DC. And I would work sometimes till three or four in the morning and then have to be up at seven. <laughs> Oh my to gosh. go to my day job. Obviously, that didn't last that long, but um, you know, there was a couple months there, and I just thought to myself, okay, I need to somehow figure out how am I going to get out of this situation where I'm having to work three jobs, but the reason I was doing it was because I really cared passionately about my work, like my vocation at the food bank, 
but I wasn't making enough money. Right. And so I think that's what millennials, we are so torn between is that as a generation, we care a lot about what our work does and who we are in our work and what we can accomplish in our short time on this planet. And so that's a, some, a thing that we're really concerned about and that drives us. But the fact is, we're also the most debt-ridden age group of people that's ever existed. And so how do we balance those two things? And I thought, what I need to do, I need to figure out how to get financially free. And then I can figure out how do I give back and how do I find purpose and meaning. And so at 25, I sat there and I thought, okay, I have this desire to start a company. I was one of those people, then this may ring true with others out there that like everything was a business idea. <laughs> and I'm sure it was super annoying to all of my friends, but like every day I was just like, oh my gosh, that would be such a great business. Like what if I did blah, blah, fill in the blank, literally like the stupidest ideas you've ever heard of. But <laughs> that was just where my brain was. I was constantly thinking, um, what is going to be my business idea? And so I think a lot of people, when they want to start a company, they think that they have to be struck with some great idea or something that's never happened before, or they have to come up with something totally new. And the truth is where we're at in our economy is that's actually a very small part of the businesses that are started or that exist. The, the vast majority of companies that are started now are basically taking iterations of what already exists and just making them better. And so for me, there were kit kombucha kit companies out there. There weren't many, but there was definitely one that was like the big leader back in, you know, 2012, 2013. And I looked at their product and I thought to myself, I could do this so much better. And that was all that mattered, that I saw something that I thought I had, something that I could bring to the table, which was basically an instructional background of like, how do you take something and make sure that your instructions are totally foolproof and that somebody goes through this feeling confident and happy, like that this experience was a positive one. And I didn't feel like there was anything out there like that at the time. So my big goal at the age of 25 was that I wanted to make a million dollars by the time I was 30. You had that exact number in your mind. Like yes. you committed to that. Wow. I committed to that number. And at the time, you know, it's funny looking back. I don't actually don't, I don't know why I picked that number because really, re like realistically, it made zero sense. My whole family had never made that much money in their entire lives. And so I think it was just this number in my mind that I knew I could attain. Like I knew I could be successful if I put my mind to it. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I felt deep down like, oh yeah, I'm going to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30. And whether that was like profit or revenue, I don't think I really <laughs> dug that deep <laughs> into it. I, I couldn't even tell you now. <laughs> yeah, it was really just the, the notion of it, that I was going to create something uh, that was going to be successful enough that I was going to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30. So it was important to me because it was crazy enough that it was really going to push me, but it was actually, in my mind, attainable. And it was important to me because I was at this place where I wasn't making enough money to take care of myself. I was making enough money to only pay off my school loans, mm -hmm. but not thinking about my future and not thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And so it really came down to, if I don't commit to this, 
then what am I doing? What am I gonna am I gonna be working three jobs in three years? Like, no, I need to make a plan. And so that was my plan. And I think what what really happened, so I guess to sort of weave this into the story of the kombucha shop, how I got there was I basically I had an idea and I knew I could do it and I didn't let anything or anyone stop me. Easy. Because (laughs) (laughs) if I've learned any, like I've learned a lot of stuff in the last five years of, of building a company from nothing. If I've learned anything, it's that perseverance can really get you anywhere in life. It's, it's at least for me, it was, if I just keep going, if I put one foot in front of another and I show up the next day and I don't let the challenges that continuously come up in a business every day, day after day, if I don't let them get me down and I just see them as a driver, if I see challenges as something just to push me uh, and make me better and make the company better, then I'll get there. And so I think that's really how I got there because it was in the beginning, it was just, um, it was a hobby. It was actually not a really ever a side hustle. I think a lot of people start businesses as side hustles. Um, and it works out really well for them because everyone has a different path to how they get anywhere in life, business or um, not business, you know, everyone has their own path. But for me, I knew if I don't jump head first into this and put everything I have into it, uh, which was only $800 at the time, which is what they they said, uh, showed on Shark Tank. Um, it was so funny, like how many follow-up DMs I got on Instagram that were just like, wait, so break it down for me though, really. <laughs> Let's itemize this $800. What did you, I literally, I had to answer that many times. I was like, okay, well, I got a student designer to do my initial logo, which is not the one we have now. I had like a totally different brand and everything. So I hired a student designer. I, for like a couple hundred bucks, I spent a couple hundred dollars on all the initial supplies to build the first kits. And some money went to, you know, a website fee, like all that basic stuff. As little as possible was my thought was like, okay, if I'm going to fail at this, then I want to do it quickly. And I don't want (laughs) to spend a lot of money. So let's see if anybody, what I always tell, entrepreneurs call me or email me a lot and say like, what's, you know, tell me something I don't know. Like how, how did you do this? What's going to help me get there? And I always say, fail fast. Yeah. Like figure out, stop toiling over the website. No, it's not going to be perfect. Stop toiling over every little thing and just see if anybody cares. Put it out there in the world and see if anybody even responds. Like if it's crickets, maybe you're, it's not something that people are looking for at that time, or they just don't get it and you've got to tweak your message. But for me, it was see if anybody even wants to have acutely branded kombucha brewing kit. And it turned out people did. So I knew I had something and then I just kept going from there. So people did want the cutely uh, branded kombucha brewing set. Oh, that is a tongue twister, but I think I got it. (laughs) Uh, And you started experiencing some success, but how did you get it into your head that it was time to be on Shark Tank, that that was this next step? Right. So it was not an easy decision to make. I think really, 
Oh my gosh, no. It was I think it would be I would have thought it would be a no-brainer. Going on national television is terrifying. I know. I've been on the dating show on national television and it, it still did? haunts me. Yes, that's Oh my gosh. Can you tell me which one? That's a different podcast, but <laughs> that's that's amazing. Yeah, no, I uh, I care, I think like a lot of people, I care about what people think about me and how I present myself in the world. And it was just so afraid of going into the tank, you know, like half of the people that come out of there just get destroyed. And so I was not fully confident that I could go on there and do well enough that they wouldn't just rip me apart. And I wouldn't, you know, make a laughing stock of myself in front of 8 million people. So that was my, my big fear. And it was funny because everybody around me was just bewildered. They were like, what do you mean, Kate? You've you're the most confident person I know and you'd be great. They'd love you. Like, why are you even second guessing this? And I think it just goes to show that even people who think um, or who are perceived as having everything together and that they know exactly what they're doing, that like, no one really does. We're all just figuring it out as we go. Yeah. And so, yeah, and it's easy to put on a business person persona, I would imagine, in front, like in the situations where you have to. That's mm -hmm. what's expected of you. That could be a whole different side of your personality. Yeah. So I had to really do some soul searching and just be like, why? Why am I second guessing myself? Because what, so what happened was I got a phone call from a producer on the show and I thought it was a scam. <laughs> that first. would be anyone's first thought, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And, and then, but then when he emailed me and it was like, Matt, you know, well, I should probably shouldn't say his name, but it was like <laughs> at Shark Tank TV, at Shark Tank TV .com. And I was like, that's totally fake. <laughs> and he was like, trust me, I get that all the time, but no, really, like you can look at my IMDb. Oh my God. Um, I'm a real producer here. So uh, long story short, he was like, hey, I found you uh, on a, a press piece you had. I don't remember. It was like maybe BuzzFeed or something mm -hmm. else. And he's like, I think you would be great for the show. It's a super timely product and I think it would go over really well. So give it a thought. And so I thought about it for like three months. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And not like full time, but sort of just not ruminating 24 hours a day. Got no, it. no, no, no. Like it was just in the back of my head. Does this actually make sense for my business? Is this where I want to go? And the big question that I kind of kept coming back to was, is this even my market? Like, are there going to yeah. be people who watch Shark Tank who want to brew kombucha or know somebody who wants to brew kombucha um, or has a kid who wants to brew kombucha? Like, I, it's so hard to know. You go in blind, like, what are the stats? And I really did just go off of faith that kombucha has reached a level where people that you wouldn't expect to are huge kombucha fans. Yep. And uh, that's what turned out to be the case. And so, uh, yeah, I basically was like, okay, we're going to do this. Of course, I brought it all the way down to the wire. I had like three <laughs> days to get an audition tape in, a <gasps> hundred page application. Oh my gosh. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And I got my friend Marla, who is just an amazing media person. She runs an agency here in Madison uh, called Food Court Agency. If anyone's uh, looking for a great product photographer, um, everything. She's a jack of all trades. So I was like, and she is a huge uh, 
she's a huge TV fan. Oh, great. Um, so like she would love the fact that you went on this dating show. She'd be like, oh my God, let me tell you about all the shows I've been on. Cause she's on, on a, just a ton of random game shows. Oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So she was my, my, I knew she was going to be my partner in crime with this from the beginning. So she helped me put together the application and video and we put it in and like, right. I mean, the turnaround was so fast. Like a week later, they were like, we want you, um, your finalist. And then it's basically, you work with them for two months. Wow. And you That's either get to the next, yeah. yeah, either you get to the next step or you don't, and you just kind of keep going. And as long as they keep you on the Island, uh, <laughs> they fly you out to LA. And then, uh, eventually if you stay on the Island while you're in LA, cause there's a bunch of hoops you have to jump through there and then you pitch to the sharks. Wow. That I didn't realize there was so much um, background work involved, I guess. But that makes sense because I'm sure they want to know every little thing that they are about to put on national TV and potentially put money in. Yes, it's a very huge production. Yeah. What were you thinking uh, right before those doors open and you walk in to meet the Sharks? Oh, um, <laughs> I at that point, I had been sitting in a trailer for like six hours by myself. Oh God. Um, and I just had like a pump up playlist. It was like <laughs> Kanye intermixed with, uh, like Tony Robbins videos. Oh I was God. all over the place. <laughs> I was all over the place and I was just trying to stay, you know, positive and amped and, uh, trying to keep from just pitting out. I had like Kleenex under my armpits. Yep. It was just always a big, it was a lot. Yep. And then you finally get, uh, you know, they bring you in the studio just before you're about to go out and you know your hair and makeup, everybody's all around you. They're micing you up. And at that point, I was just so amped that it was going to be over soon. Yeah. I just That's knew. That's fair. Like, I'm finally here. All I got to do is literally not die out there. That's the <laughs> lowest possible bar you could have set for yourself. Yes. And it worked. <laughs> I was like, just go out there, have fun. Uh, because you've made it. It at this point has been one, two, three. I mean, so many months of, round the clock work in preparation. Um, and so, and even out, you know, and I was out in LA for many days and like, it's, it was just so much buildup and I was just excited for it to be done. And I was just excited to actually finally get out there and do the pitch that I had rehearsed a thousand times. And so when I was walking down the hallway, I was actually just overcome with like tons of excitement. Yeah. And walked out that just pretty joyful to be there. Well, I'd say that that came off in your in your <laughs> clip that I saw from the show. Uh, you seemed super confident and like just excited. Um, I'm curious, did you expect the Sharks to have tried kombucha at all? Their reactions just cracked me up. They were making faces. They were groaning. They were, they were giving you a little bit of a hard time right off the bat. Yeah. And I knew they were going to. Of course. And like, yeah. That's why, and the producers were just like, no, no, no. Like, they, they have to drink the product. Like, they got to know what's it going to taste like. And I was like, it's going to be this whole spectacle. But, of course, that's what the producer wants. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they were just hamming it up. Like, they were just going so over the top. But it was fun because it created, from the get-go, it created this really fun atmosphere. Good. We were all just laughing. And I was out there, actually, for, like, 35 minutes is the whole Wow real pitch and Q&A, which they edit down from anywhere from five to 10 minutes. And the whole time, it was just like a lot of laughter and a lot of fun. So I was like, totally serious. I've made some 
joke that I was like, oh, I should have never let you guys try it. And Mark Cuban literally lost it. They even cut it. He lost it for like three minutes, just <laughs> cracking up. Like no one had done that brutally honest before. Um, and so, no, it was, it was ex- to be expected. And uh, it, was, it was a good time. Well, and then I'm curious to know, like once, you know, once you've got the kombucha down their throats and you're actually talking business, how were you able to sort of analyze their counter offers, but keeping in mind your own goals for, you know, what you wanted out of that interaction and your future goals for the company? Because I imagine it's pretty tough to think on your feet in that type of environment, especially with those numbers at stake. Yes, it was extraordinarily challenging. And they did, you know, obviously they're doing some very heavy editing with all of the segments. Um, a lot of stuff gets left on the cutting room sure. floor. So they made the the cut seem even more extreme um, to me taking the deal at the end. But it kind of, it followed the, the storyline pretty exact. What got missed was that they were arguing over one another so much towards the end. You know, Kevin was just like, oh, Barbara, you're overpaying. And Barbara's like, no, I'm not. And Lori's like, you should be doing this. Blah, blah, blah. They all started arguing so much that at one point I literally had to clear the deck and was like, can somebody please reiterate the offer for me? Because Barbara's <laughs> original offer had gotten drowned out. And in her original offer, she said, you have to tell us right now. Yeah. And so that got cut out. And so the last thing I heard before we had to have her re-say it was, you've got to tell us right now. They love doing that. I know. And normally it makes it onto the show, but I think everybody's mics, everything just got so muddled. Um, And ended up working for editing. But in real life, I had like 60 seconds of them kind of arguing and me just trying to go into my head and think, what are you going to do now, Kate? Is this the deal that you want? Are these the partners that you want? Should you give Mark an opportunity to put an offer on the table? Or do you take a burden in hand? And he was who you set out to work with. Is that correct? Or who you were hoping for? I didn't necessarily set out to work with any particular one of them. I have my favorites. I think Barbara's really brilliant. I think Mark is great. Um, I was so excited that Sarah Blakely was the guest shark. She is amazing. Um, she's really fantastic. And I, I had looked up to her for a long time as an entrepreneur. Uh, so I was just happy kind of with everybody and everybody has their strengths, I think, uh, or at least what they portray as their strengths. And so I knew I wanted a strong retail partner and that is something that Barbara does a lot of. Yep. So when she made the offer and then Barbara says, okay, Sarah, do you want to come in on this? And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, they're both going to take 10%. Or ask for 10% at least. Mm -hmm. And when Sarah said, no, we're going to give you exactly what you asked for. I'm going to take 5%. Barbara's going to take 5%. And we're still going to value your company at $3.5 million. I was just like, I've got to take this. If anything, Mark is the one who taught me a bird in the hand. (laughs) Like (laughs) So many times on that show, he has reamed entrepreneurs for not taking an excellent offer that they have on the table. And then oftentimes they end up walking out empty handed. In fact, I feel like I've seen it more and more on the show lately. And so it was just a risk I wasn't willing to take. I was like, I can't, if they're giving me what I asked and more like two sharks for what I came in here asking for, I've got to take it. And so it was a very split second decision, but 
at the time I felt confident it was the right choice. Well, congratulations. That just even just listening to your instinct is a feat in itself and doing that in that high pressure environment is really impressive. And I'd love to know following <laughs> up since appearing on Shark Tank, I know it was pretty recently, but has anything changed already in your day to day or in your company's big picture strategy? Um, it's kind of funny. So obviously post Shark Tank, it changed the company a lot. We had to bring prior to the airing, we only had about three weeks notice that the show was going to air. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty standard. Um, just because so much in the industry, uh, changes when, with networks and studios and everybody involved. So they only give you a three week warning. And so we had to staff up really quickly and bulk up inventory. And that was basically the beginning of a pretty insane two months. Especially and right so, before the holidays, I'm sure. Yes. So that was the big challenge is our fourth quarter is already our biggest quarter by far. We're like your pretty typical American retailer in that we are doing 50% of our revenue in four weeks. Right. 50% of the entire oh year's revenue. So those numbers are already astounding and you go into a mode of, of just working around the clock to meet the demand. And so you throw on top of that airing in front of several million people who've never heard of you. Um, and yeah, the traffic got, got really insane. So the orders just came in and didn't stop all the way until Christmas. And so that's why I'm taking my company to LA next week <laughs> on a well-deserved retreat. <laughs> yeah, you guys definitely deserve it. Yeah. So, but as far as how it's affecting the company moving forward, um, the we're still in talks with Barbara and Sarah's teams. The deals take anywhere from six to nine months to close in real life. So sure. Um, and a good majority of them don't close. Uh, so it just totally, once, you know, once all the parties sit down together and actually talk about, well, here's what I'm, you know, they come with their own contingencies. And then when you really stop and think like, is this the partner that I want? Are we, do we have the same visions? There's a lot that has to get hashed out. And so we're still just in those talks and hopefully they'll be coming to some sort of a conclusion soon. And regardless of how things shake out, they'll probably have the same effect on the year and that we're going to still pursue this adding in a retail angle to our business. We've been direct to consumer online for really since the beginning, we sound like maybe 30 brick and mortar retailers around the country, mm -hmm. but um, definitely it's, we're not in any major stores. So we've decided that that's something for us that I think would make a lot of sense um, since the airing on Shark Tank has been phenomenal because we've had a lot of people reaching out to us, some big stores that we were very excited to hear from, and then just a lot of cool online retailers that uh, different online brands that want to work with us. And so overall, it's just, yeah, it's been an incredible lift for the company. Well, it sounds like you guys have all of the opportunities in the world at your hands right now, which is super exciting. Yeah, it's a fun place to be. I want to go back for a second to um, your time in culinary and nutrition education, and especially working with those low-income families. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you learned from working in those fields that you use to run your company as it is today? So not in those early days when you were figuring out how to do these processes from scratch, but what lessons do you still carry with you as the CEO of a Shark Tank appearing company? I think one of the biggest things I learned back when I was working at the food bank, that still rings true today, is that people are everything. 
because I'm not an island, right? (laughs) No woman is an island. And when it comes to running a successful, sustainable company, I've learned that it is 100% the people that work around me and work for me and how happy and resilient they are in their jobs. And so when I was working in some pretty tough areas in DC, I think I saw firsthand the power of resiliency and the power of community and the power of when people come together around something and they feel driven by it and they feel driven by a mission that it can take you so much further. That a focus on money uh, or profit or just growing for growth's sake is never going to lead to a truly rich business. And I learned that really from my clients because so many of them had gone through so much hardship and yet were some of the most positive, driven people I'd ever met. And what they would always point to was the people in their lives. And it's kind of something that has just stuck with me ever since then. So the people in my business and my customers are by far the most important thing. And I really do, it's God, it's such an amazing question that you asked because um, I don't think I even really realized it until a few years into my business. When I first started the company, I was so obsessed with my customers. Yeah. And I think it was why we had a lot of success early on because I didn't have a lot of money. And I didn't have a lot of money to be throwing out Facebook ads and things like that. And I thought, well, that means that I need to turn my customers into advertisers. I need to have them be so amped about what they're doing and what they're brewing, who taught them how to brew this kit, the kombucha shop, just and feel great and part of something so that they were the ones out there evangelizing it because I didn't have the money to. And so I just, everything came down to how can I make my customers happy And I would just give them anything. It was literally like, you ask for something, you've got it. Like somebody emails and says, you know, this showed up broken. Can you refund my money or you can do this? And I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to refund you and I'm shipping you the entire thing again for free. And if you have any questions when you start brewing, like I'm here for you, here's my email. And we just constantly over-delivered. And I think that's really what has driven our company culture. And it, yeah, it just all comes back to people and how you treat people. Well, it seems like you've really delighted your customers and the people who work for you. And I'm sure uh, company retreats to LA are just a small part of all the ways that uh, your company is lucky to have you as the head. Oh, you're so sweet. Um, Thank you. <laughs> it's, been a long, it's been a long road to get here. I, and I say that from a point now of very admitted privilege of the business having worked out. <laughs> it was successful um, because for many years there, it who knew? Like, and it was very hard to tell, like, is this going to work? Are we going to have legs? And for a long time, it was just me and one of my staff, Matt, who's been with me since the beginning. He's still here. Um, We were working out of this like 400 square foot back room of another warehouse. It was like, (laughs) I mean, it's just so crazy to, to look back on where we started and where we just went in every day and worked and packed kits and dealt with problems that came from not having enough money and not being in the right space. And so I think when you finally make it, it's like you're just that much more grateful to everyone who was around you that stuck stuck with you through it. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot to be grateful for. And 
you've come a really long way, but it seems like you've got a lot of open doors right now. So with all of that in mind, I'd love to wrap with our final question that we ask everybody, which is what's a future goal that you're working towards? And again, why is it important to you and what steps are you taking to get there? Yes, I love this question because to me, it's like a, it's a really big question to just pick one, especially for people who tend to be uh, and probably the vast majority of your listeners who are people who are like, they're planners, they're overachievers, they're doers. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so you're like, <laughs> one goal? I don't have one big goal for my future. I've got like 20. Um, and so it's, I think it is really helpful, though, especially this time of year, for people to take that time to sit and reflect and think about what are my priorities for the year ahead? What are my goals for the year ahead? What are my goals for the next five years? Um, and when you do drill down and you have to get to the bottom of it, I think that's when you really get to something. And so I think for me, if I had to pick one that I'm really going to focus on, one big one is refining myself in the context of the kombucha shop. And what am I passionate about? And what am I good at? And what do I really want to work on? Because I think any entrepreneur, really any person who pours themselves into anything, it can be a job, it can be a relationship. It can be uh, child raising. When you pour yourself entirely, 100% into something, inevitably you're going to get lost in it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, especially if it's a positive experience. And so while the business had a lot of ups and downs, it was something that has been overall very enriching for me. But there is now at this point, no separation between the kombucha shop and Kate. Like they are so interlinked at this point that I have grown up over the time that I have had this business and I haven't really stepped back to think, who am I now? What do I want to work on? What do I want to do with this business? Where do I want to take the business? But for the first time in a long time, I want to focus on where am I in that piece and where are my needs and where are my values and my goals? Because I feel like when people just keep going and they just let inertia keep pushing them, that's when they start to put out product that isn't as valuable and they don't push their company maybe in the directions that it, it should be if you were really stopping and thinking, well, what do I want to do? And so for me, I'm just going to focus a lot on where, where do we go from here? Where does Kate in particular go from here? That's the goal. And then the question is, how do I get there? Yeah. What does that look like for you? So for me, I think it means just doing a lot of self-work and paying attention to myself for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And I actually think when a lot of my close girlfriends have children now in the ages of two, three, four, and five. And so it's funny because I started the business at a time when I have a lot of different friends who uh, have been starting families. To me, the business is very much like a child in that. I, it's like I woke up one day, I, I woke up and all of a sudden my baby was going to kindergarten. <laughs> it's fine trained and everything. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's sort of like, wow, like where have the last five years gone? And we went on Shark Tank. Like that is in and of itself is such a crazy thing because when I started the business, I remember kind of like that million dollar goal. I was like, you know, I could totally get on Shark Tank one day. I totally want to do that, which is an insane goal. Like, I think they said 40,000 plus people applied to be on Shark Tank this season. Wow. And they 
they only fly out like maybe 200. Oh my gosh. That's a ludicrous goal to have. <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to be on Shark Tank. But it, it kind of shows the power of believing in yourself and believing in, like, if you really set a vision, and but you truly believe it. It's not like, oh, yeah, I could do that one day. Like, you manifest it in a way that's like, if I do all the right steps and I persevere through all these challenges, I think that I could actually achieve that one day and, like, truly believe it in your bones. And so this is actually going to be, I think, a, this goal of refinding myself or rediscovering myself outside of the context of the business is probably going to be one of the more challenging things I've done in the last five years because work gets really easy when you get good at it and it's almost like autopilot. Now it's everything outside of the kombucha shop is way more challenging for me because it takes more thought and intention. And so I think I'm just going to have to spend a lot of time writing, discussing, working with my staff, figuring out where do we want to take the business, but not necessarily where do we want the business to take Kate? Like for the first time, stopping and thinking, what do I need? Where do I personally want to be in three or five years? And how can I get there? Well, Kate, I could talk to you forever. I'm going to be honest. (laughs) I had a great time. But before we go, could you tell our listeners where they can find the kombucha shop for all of their home brewing needs? Yes, definitely. Uh, so it's just uh, www.thekombuchashop.com. Easy. Yeah, uh, it's pretty easy. It's, uh, it is hard to spell for some people. Yeah, um, we'll make sure to include and it. It's hard to pronounce. Yeah, to, to be honest, every now and then, I don't know if this ever happens to you, like right before you say a word or a name that you know you know how to pronounce, you slightly panic. I've been doing that the entire episode every time I say kombucha. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. But you should know that is like everybody. My mom, my own mother, like still half the time calls it kombucha, um, kombucha, kombucha. Like still after five years, she cannot figure it out. Um, but that's like the vast majority of people. All right, um, we're not alone. No, it's a weird word. I think it's, I think it's roots are in Russian. No, it's... <laughs> It's not our normal linguistics. (laughs) Coming soon, part two of this podcast, looking into the word origins of kombucha. Kombucha. That'll be a bonus bonus episode. I love it. Kate, thank you so much for being on the We Got Goals podcast. Thank you. It was awesome. This podcast is a sweatlife.com production, and it's another thing that's better with friends. So please share it with yours. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you get a chance to leave us a rating or a review while you're there, we would really appreciate it. Special thanks to Jay Mono for our theme music, to our guest this week, Kate Field, to Ryan Deffett for editing, and to Tech Nexus for the recording studio. And of course, an extra special thanks to you, our listeners.